Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. We're going to have a great couple hours. I've got them well laid out, planned, ready to go. Rob Louie is going to be joining me in just about a minute. And then Dr. Chris Thurman, he wrote a book, uh, gosh, 30 years ago. So he has revised it and updated it. It's called The Lies We Believe. Renew your mind and transform your life. But I also just care about how you're doing today. I hope you've had a good day. Thanks uh, for spending time with me. Uh, I promise it's going to be a great show because in hour two, uh, we've got Dr. Mark Muska coming in the studio. And that's always a lot of fun for me. And it's very educational because we can ask ask Mark any question about the Bible. So let the questions uh, come in now. Let us know what they are. Send a text to 877-933-2484. And we'll get those questions all lined up for Mark. That's all ahead. We'll take a short break and uh, bring on Rob Bluey. I love my Tuesdays. I always get to talk to Rob Bluey. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. The web address is dailysignal.com. I insist you go there. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. You just uh, were brushing elbows with uh, Vice President Mike Pence, weren't you? Absolutely. That's right. Vice President Pence was in the building at the Heritage Foundation today, a major speech uh, that he delivered, covered a a lot of topics. Of course, today is Constitution Day, so it was uh, quite uh, significant to have somebody of his stature in the building to celebrate Constitution Day with us. But uh, but yeah, the the key focus of of today's remarks was on free trade, specifically the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, which, uh, as we know, is kind of stalled in Congress. And, And this vice president has personally taken it on as a a responsibility of his to see that it get dislodged and hopefully get action in the U.S. House. And uh, he said that after his speech at Heritage, he was, you know, going to make that message quite clear to members of Congress that uh, they need to get moving on this because time is running out before the end of the year. So let's talk about the trade policy. What's going on with China? Uh, Can we trust them as an honorable uh, country to do honest trade negotiations with? Well, it, it certainly seems that uh, it moves in fits and starts here. I mean, there there are times when it appears that things are moving in the right direction and we are uh, moving away from tariffs. And then the next thing you know, there, uh, of course, is uh, competing tariffs on both sides. Uh, the U.S. imposes its tariffs and China does its. And that ultimately just hurts consumers at the end of the day because, of course, they're paying uh, – the costs are, are passed on by the companies uh, and consumers end up paying more for – the toys or the goods and services that uh, that, that China is uh, sending to the United States. So, uh, you know, there's a number of factors here. There there are some security concerns and obviously human rights concerns in light of what's taking place in Hong Kong. But if you just boil it down to some of the trade uh, concerns, this president has made it clear that he thinks that China is treating the United States unfairly. So he is not backing down, and mm-hmm. he is going to punish China economically, he feels, that uh, if that's the way to send a message, then that's what he's going to do. You remember that he tried this with Mexico and was successful. He threatened Mexico with a number of tariffs, and Mexico came to the table and and finally uh, was able to put in some controls to to stop the flow of illegal immigrants into the United States. So uh, there's not quite that same type of leverage with China, but uh, this president certainly is keeping up the pressure campaign uh, in hopes that the United States will get a better deal. And uh, I think all we have to hope is, uh, especially as we head toward the holidays here, ultimately consumers... uh, you know, don't have to end up paying more for for some of the things that uh, we typically buy that might be coming from China. So, Rob, help us understand when China does currency manipulation, how that affects their country and how that affects the trade negotiations. 
Sure. Well, this is a longstanding concern with regard to China. Uh, well, there, there are a number of concerns. Uh, con- currency manipulation is, is one. Of course, uh, trademark violations are, are another. Uh, them, you know, ripping off uh, U.S. copyright and, and U.S. products. Uh, specifically with currency manipulation, yeah, what, what you have is a situation where, where China uh, is, is essentially trying to shift the balance uh, and, uh, and have an advantage in terms of uh, the way that it's able to, uh, to, to influence the market and when it comes to you know, uh, the currency. So, so Bill, uh, what does it mean for, for U.S. consumers? Well, this is, goes to the heart of what President Donald Trump complains about. He says that there's a trade imbalance. Uh, he doesn't like the trade deficit with China. Now, in some cases, you know, us free traders at the Heritage Foundation point out that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, of course, when China's using manipulative ways uh, to achieve that, uh, then it is. It is bad, and we need to call them on that. So I think that uh, one of the things that this president is not afraid of doing is certainly pointing out where he sees China abusing uh, the, the rule of law and the, the system of international norms, and he's unafraid to to hold them accountable for that. Um, you know what we had, what we heard today from the vice president, I think, was a strong message that at the end of the day, we want a system of free trade, and the the lower that the tariffs can be, uh, the better off for for those of us here in the United States, those uh, individuals in China, uh, in Mexico, Canada, you name it. Uh, because at the end of the day, what we want is a system of, of capitalism and free markets as opposed to a system of socialism where the government exerts more control. And so the more power we can put back into the hands of consumers and individuals is better off. And, Bill, as you know, because we hear it every day from the presidential candidates, uh, you know, there are quite a stark uh, contrast between the way President Trump would approach things and and some of those who uh, want to take his job. We have uh, collected uh, a record amount of money from China, haven't we, since these tariffs have gone in place? We we certainly have, and look, China is hurting economically. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's no doubt about that. Uh, these tariffs have uh, have dampened the economic prospects uh, for China. I think it's caused them to reevaluate things. They are trying to exert themselves uh, on the same level as the United States. I mean, so on the one hand, I think they they probably uh, love the attention that they get from from President Trump because. Uh, you know, he he's certainly talking about China a whole lot more than he's talking about some other countries. So on the one level, he's put them on, on that same plane. At the same time, there are some other factors at play here. I mean, look, let's not forget about North Korea, uh, which we know uh, is, is a neighbor of China's uh, and continues to – be a bad actor in that region. Uh, China's had influence in, in countries, uh, you know, from the Middle East to Africa, where it's trying to exert its influence and global power. Uh, that poses uh, national security risks to the United States as well. So there are there are things beyond the economy in China that I think are are at play here. And uh, we know that China's trying to exert its influence, uh, you know, in, in ways that uh, position it better than the United States. And uh, there's no better example than uh, the protests you're seeing in Hong Kong and why people are resisting China's, uh, you know, totalitarian approach because they worry about what it means for the future. Yeah. Now, Rob, probably not many uh, listening right now. We're in the same room with Vice President Pence today. So um, any other little tidbits that he, he gave out today that you'd like to share? Well, sure. In addition to free trade, the two big topics that he talked about were the uh, 
the strike-in uh, on the oil facility in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we still are collecting information, don't know the full extent of the details, but he made it very clear that President Trump would not hold back uh, for those uh, who are responsible for this, if it is Iran or uh, another actor uh, in Iran uh, or associated with it. Uh, you better believe that this president uh, is going to hit back and hit back hard. Um, uh, he the, the vice president, I believe, used the term locked and loaded. Uh, so uh, wow. clearly uh, there is uh, a desire to send a strong message to those uh, who did this. Look, this had an enormous effect on, on global oil supply. Five percent of uh, global oil supply was affected. Uh, this was a major attack uh, in Saudi Arabia and something that uh, I think uh, poses a warning for, for people around the globe, uh, who, whoever uh, took part in this action. Uh, I think the second big topic that the vice president talked about that uh, your listeners would uh, – certainly want to know about is uh, Brett Kavanaugh. So we saw the New York Times over the weekend uh, launch another smear attack uh, from a new book that's out uh, today by a couple of its reporters. Uh, of course, uh, Bill, uh, hours after that, the New York Times had to issue a major correction, an embarrassing correction. Uh, not only did they have to remove the tweets, which uh, the tweets were just uh, wholly inappropriate on their own, uh, but they left out a key uh, fact that the a woman at the center of the allegation uh, refused to be interviewed uh, for the book or the story that they wrote, and there are several people who couldn't corroborate her her story. Uh, so, uh, you know, despite the fact that you had several presidential candidates coming out calling for Brett Kavanaugh to be impeached, you have uh, a member of Congress introducing articles of impeachment against Brett Kavanaugh, the whole story is, is falling apart, uh, and it seems that that's a convenient fact that uh, many in the media still uh, refuse to acknowledge, but the vice president made it quite clear that President Trump stands behind him, he stands behind Brett Kavanaugh, and they're not going to let uh, this kind of smear campaign uh, persist. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it, this only does harm to, to journalism, uh, this type of shoddy reporting. Uh, the Washington Post, pa Post uh, decided to pass on this type of story. The New York Times news desk, remember this was run in the opinion section of the New York Times, the news desk didn't even want to touch this story. Uh, what does it do, Bill? It just brings down the trust in journalism, uh, and I think that that hurts everybody at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Rob Louis, my guest, executive uh, editor of The Daily Signal. We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, lots more with Rob. Welcome back to the show. Rob Bluey is my guest on our studio line. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com to check it out. Um, Rob, why have judicial confirmations gotten so political these days? Well, it's a topic that we examined up close here uh, yesterday at the Heritage Foundation, and the Daily Signal has a great story about this. You know, there there are a whole number of factors, but, uh, but largely uh, there has been a sustained effort on the part of the left uh, to to make these political. I mean, you you saw this. We were just talking about the the Kavanaugh confirmation. I mean, that's exhibit number one in terms of uh, the the, the uh, you know political nature that they have have taken on. But 
But I remember you know, covering judicial nominees under President George W. Bush, which seems like an eternity <laughs> ago. But you had a, a qualified candidate, Miguel Estrada, uh, who was filibustered. Uh, and you even go farther back to Robert Bork, who was nominated uh, to the Supreme Court by uh, President Reagan. And, uh, and you saw what happened to him and how Ted Kennedy led an effort on the Senate floor uh, to politicize his nomination. So it's certainly a troubling trend. Uh, it seems that it more often happens to nominees who are picked by Republican presidents. Um, and you're seeing it not just with Supreme Court nominees, although those are the ones that become more prominent, but you're even seeing it with uh, candidates for appellate or district court nominees. Uh, and one recent example um, is uh, a gentleman by the name of Steve Menashe, who happened to write articles for the Dartmouth Review, his college newspaper, uh, decades ago. And those articles now are surfacing, and he's being held accountable for what he wrote. Um, and, you know, in some cases it was – uh, you know, things that maybe are regrettable, but I mean, you, you could go on and have a distinguished career in public service and something you write as a college freshman, uh, you know, comes back and uh, it's, uh, it's held against you. So I, I think that there's a couple of lessons here. Um, if you have listeners or people who want to go into public service, uh, be careful what you, what you publish, uh, whether it's in a newspaper or whether it's uh, a tweet, um, you know, that's probably going to be dug up someday. And, uh, and secondly here, you know, I think we just need to get back to a, a system where, uh, you know, we have a, a sense of mutual respect and, uh, and civil discourse, and we, we don't necessarily, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, throw mud at each other so much. I mean, it just – it's really gotten toxic here in Washington, D.C. Yeah, Rob, I always uh, appreciate your upbeat spirit, and unfortunately this next story is just so difficult to process, but this uh, doctor uh, – Ulrich Klopner, Klopfer, I can't even say his name. I don't even want to say his name. Anyway, he was an abortion doctor, and in his home, they found 2,000-plus uh, fetal remains that he had taken possession of that were um, kind of in jars at his house. Yeah, it's shocking. It reminds me of Kermit Gosnell. Oh, it does. The, uh, the Philadelphia abortionist who, of course, um, is is rightfully serving time in, in, in prison in a books and movies have been written about the horrendous crimes that he committed against, uh, you know, the, the, the tiniest uh, victims, uh, the, these, these babies who, um, you know, had no way to defend themselves. And it is just shocking. You know, last week we had a, a, a big hearing in Washington, D.C. On, on the Born Alive bill that's, uh, that's stuck in the House. Uh, the Democrats, led by Nancy Pelosi, will not give it a vote. And, and we had an opportunity to talk to some individuals who are advocating for that. And this story coming on top of it, it just – it's shocking. It, it truly uh, is just horrifying to, to see the crimes that were, were committed. And it makes you think, Bill, uh, how somebody could do this uh, to a defenseless baby – um, I I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think uh, this story deserves more attention than it's getting. I'm glad that, that you raised it. Um, it's certainly one that I'm glad to see the vice president, for instance, uh, bring it up yesterday. Uh, of course, uh, I believe he was living in Illinois, but uh, the, the practice was in Indiana. So I think that authorities there, um, you know, can do should do everything they can uh, to to expose this type of behavior and uh, and and let people know the the true victims here uh, because there are uh, and it's um, like I say I, I I just I I don't know how how people can do such uh, horror, horrific acts but uh, but perhaps um, 
you know, uh, through prayer and, and healing, we can, we can, you know, maybe understand and, and maybe convert them to have a different belief. And we talked to somebody last week at the Daily Signal on our podcast who used to be an abortionist. And uh, because of her, her prayers and because God led her to a different life, is now an activist uh, on the pro-life cause. Um, so I, I hope that individuals uh, will someday be able to, to recognize the, the value and dignity of human life. Yeah, it's beautiful. Now, Cecile Richards, who I think used to be president of Planned Parenthood, she said, you can't be a Democrat if you don't support abortion. It's non-negotiable. Well, and look, there's, what, only one or two in the U.S. House who happen to be uh, pro-life Democrats. Uh, and, and there's a gentleman by the name of Dan Lipinski, uh, who is, is from Illinois, who is uh, facing the fight of his life uh, because the uh, pro-abortion uh, left-wing radicals uh, led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are, are going after him, endorsing uh, an opponent. Um, you know, despite the fact that uh, he's a reliable vote on other issues uh, for the left, uh, they they disagree with him on this one issue of life, and they want to run him out of the U.S. House of Representatives. I, I think that, you know, he spoke of the March for Life this last year, and we did a story about him. You know, it's it's really sad that uh, that, that that's the, the approach, especially because, I mean, at the end of the day, these are living, breathing human beings. I mean, it is just, it is just shocking to me that uh, the party would – you know, take such a radical position. Uh, and it's not always been that way. Let's face it. There, were, there was a time when there were Democrats who, who were, you know, were pro-life. And increasingly today, it doesn't seem that that's the case at all. I think of JFK. Wasn't he pro-life? He very well may have been. I mean, certainly his Catholic faith, faith uh, hopefully would have led him in, in that direction. But, uh, but well after him, I mean, there were there were many uh, right. individuals. Now, now there are now there. Are, I mean, now it seems the standard, if you judge it by Andrew Cuomo and Ralph Northam, the governors of New York and Virginia, uh, not only do you have abortion right up until the moment of birth. I mean, if you're Ralph Northam, you can have uh, you can kill a baby after birth. I mean, it, and and why he's still sitting in the governor's mansion in Richmond is is just a, a total disgrace. I, I mean, agree. he he should have been driven out of there months ago. And the fact that he's going around the state, uh, you know, campaigning for candidates. Uh, some of the same people who who called on him to resign. I mean, it just goes to show you, uh, you know, the, I think what what a double standard there is. Uh, because I think that if 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 there if you know, in some cases, if you have a Democrat uh, in in office, you you are held to a different standard than if you were a Republican. But in this case, uh, the the truly horrifying things that he said on air uh, will, will never I'll never forgive him. And I'm a Virginia uh, resident, and uh, and so I, I feel personally that uh, it's a disgrace grace to have him in that uh, in that seat. Yeah. I think of uh, Joe Biden, uh, Vice President Joe Biden said that privately I I'm against abortion, but publicly I'm not. And I think he's even had to retool that a little bit, hasn't he? Well, remember, Joe Biden, uh, the Hyde Amendment, which, of course, is a longstanding uh, tradition passed, uh, you know, overwhelmingly by by members of both parties, uh, to prohibit uh, taxpayer uh, funding going toward abortion. Remember, Joe Biden is somebody who regularly supported that when he was uh, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, he had to come out under pressure from the left and uh, renounce those views. Um, so, I mean, this is this is just how, how ridiculous things have become on the left and the litmus test that they're now applying to, to candidates. Uh, it is, uh, it, 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 it's just truly shocking to see how far and extreme their views have become. 
And uh, yeah, there are there are some individuals who may have the courage, uh, you know, to stand up for the principles that they believe in. But I think most of them just fall in line because they're 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 you know don't want to deal with the backlash and uh, and find themselves in a position where it's more politically convenient to just adopt the left wing orthodoxy. Yeah. Well, we're a couple of weeks into uh, NFL season, and I, I I think you like watching football now and then, as do I. And we've got uh, a couple guys already out of the lineup with Drew Brees breaking his thumb, and now he's got surgery, and then Ben Roethlisberger, he's out. And both guys love the Lord. Recently, Ben said that uh, he's going to trust God in this whole thing. It's kind of nice well, to you know, hear that. Well, you know, the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Steelers are, are my team. Uh, so <laughs> okay. It's, it's been a tough start to the year uh, here sitting 0-2. But, uh, but yeah, it was, I, I saw Ben's comment last night uh, that, uh, that he, he did reference God in his statement. And, of course, we know Drew Brees, and we know many NFL players right. who, who, you know, join in prayer or after, uh, you know, accomplishing a great play on the field will, uh, you know, point to, point to heaven and, uh, and thank God for, for providing them with that comfort and support. So it is, uh, it is truly refreshing to, to see that because I think so many people today are afraid to express that. I mean, uh, just today in the Washington Post, for instance, another attack on people who, uh, you know, would, um, would say a prayer after like a mass shooting or a horrific event. You know, it's no longer politically correct uh, to pray for somebody uh, in a time of need. And I think it's just uh, unfortunate. So to have role models uh, like a Drew Brees or, or a Ben Roethlisberger or so many others who, who do that, I think is encouraging. And we should uh, ask others to do so. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's the type of thing that, that I hope NFL teams support. And I hope uh, employers across the board, whether you're in, in professional sports or not, I think it's always good to, to turn to God and ask, uh, ask him for the strength that, uh, that, that you need to, to do your job and to, to live a successful life. Uh, look, we need it. Um, this country faces major challenges, uh, and we face challenges every day in our own personal lives. And so having faith there is, uh, is really important, Bill. Rob, you know I appreciate your wisdom and your wit and your willingness to be on the show. Those are three W's, so... Uh, well, thank you. It's good to be back, and uh, I always enjoy being with uh, with Faith Radio and the work that you do because, trust me, it is uh, it is so important to to get the good word out there, and that's uh, that's certainly what we try to do at the Daily Signal as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Rob Blue. He's been my guest, executive editor of the Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal dot com. We'll take a short break and be right back. <laughs> Here's something that makes me happy. My next guest, Dr. Chris Thurman. He has uh, written a book called The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life. And this is a completely revised and updated 30th anniversary edition. So it's awfully fun to uh, look over your work of 30 years and revise and update it. And we can get to hear about it this afternoon. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, lies. Oh, boy, they, they, they kill us, don't they? They absolutely kill us, and they kill us in ways that are kind of across the board and, and deadlier than we realize. But the Word of God crushes them, so we need to have our minds working correctly, don't we? 
We absolutely do, and we can't afford to uh, not be moving in the direction of whatever is lovely, true, pure, and worthwhile. Yeah. So let's talk about the the book, the origin. This is 30th anniversary, so you started this uh, three decades ago. Where did this whole idea come from, and what were you dealing with personally that led you to want to write this book? Well, uh, years ago when I started into the counseling field, uh, obviously we're exposed to a lot of uh, counseling approaches and viewpoints. And the one that uh, caught my attention is what they called cognitive therapy. And basically that's the view that if you're going to help people who are struggling with emotional problems, you have to help them straighten out their thinking. And as a follower of Christ, I knew that that overlapped with Scripture Um, that the Bible is heavily focused on many things, but one of them is being transformed by the renewal of your mind. So I had an opportunity to write, and uh, this is the topic that I wanted to go after. And 30 years ago, did the best job I could, given what I knew then, to uh, go into how the enemy uses lies to kill, steal, and destroy, and what our weapons are to be in, in fighting back. Mm-hmm. Chris, when I think of Isaiah 61 and it talks about I've come to bind up the brokenhearted, what about the things that we bring into our mind and believe because we're just so brokenhearted? Well, I do think, um, how to put this, um, ever since the fall, uh, our minds have been fractured into a million pieces in terms of being able to see truth accurately. Uh, even being able to, upon seeing it, being able to believe it. So I do think God, given that he loves us dearly and is so tender-hearted and good, that it, it breaks his heart when he sees us suffering uh, from a bunch of faulty views of reality. And so I do think he is more, uh, he is very interested in redemption, and I think that includes redeeming our minds And now that we have the mind of Christ in us, we've got a real opportunity to to live the abundant life in ways that we never thought were possible. Chris, uh, fair to say that one of the key strategies of the enemy would be to attack our identity? Absolutely. And uh, I would kind of segue from that into uh, that shame is perhaps the greatest identity buster of all is that the enemy wants us to walk around coded in it and to think of ourselves from an identity perspective as worthless and unlovable. I mean, uh, when we uh, struggle with identity, and it can be how we relate to people in uh, our everyday life, or it can be how we view our uh, eternal security, because that comes up often, Chris, is it's like... You know, people are are contacting the station, and they're concerned about their security in Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, having ra- been raised in a church that taught you could lose it, um, that was a real anxiety issue for me growing up, uh, was, you know, this whole thing about earning God's love mm-hmm. and uh, having to behave at whatever level that was needed to in order to... Uh, secure your salvation, and that put me in bondage to years of legalism and anxiety and and just not ever enjoying the relationship with God. Uh, so 
our identity, uh, our salvation, uh, whether or not we're in Christ. Those are all big-ticket items for most believers. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the mind of Christ. How does that manifest in our lo- in our lives? Well, I don't pretend to understand it at all fully, Bill. I'm not formally theologically trained, mm-hmm. but um, I, my understanding is that— um, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of somebody, and thus we are reborn and sealed with the Holy Spirit, that because the Holy Spirit has the mind of Christ, that we now have that in us. And that from there on, the issue is not anything other than mining it out, if you will. In other words, the gold's already there. You just have to be in the Word, study, meditate, pray, fellowship with the saints and all that for God to be able to bring out the mind of Christ that is already in you so that that becomes the way that you look at things rather than the fleshly mind that you had pre-conversion. Mm-hmm. Chris, talk about some of the, the deadly costs of believing lies regarding ourselves and how we even see others. Well, it damages everything. Uh, it'll certainly damage your sense of self. You know, you can go walking around thinking that you are worthless or unlovable. It damages your view. Lies damage your view of others. You can walk around thinking either too highly of others, which is a weird way to put it, but true, or you can think too lowly of others, and thus you can treat people badly or overly idolatrously if you're not careful. Certainly, uh, lies can damage your view of God and do. Um, There's a well-known quote by J.I. Packer, I think it's Packer or Tozier, where it says, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think that's true. And if you have a distorted view of God, then your relationship with Him is not going to be very healthy or or close or, or bonded. Uh, and, you know, I think other dimensions, it can certain, lies can certainly damage marriage, how you raise kids, how you do your job. I think lies can even lead to bodily damage in terms of high blood pressure, ulcers, uh, mm-hmm. heart disease. Uh, you know, the body, the mind, and the spirit are all interwoven with each other, so they impact one another. All right. Uh, talk a little bit, if you would, about... Um you know, we all have four or five blind spots, I would say, at a minimum. And when we're believing a lie and we're living in a blind spot, how do we approach somebody and try to speak truth to them uh, without them being too defensive? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I think, um, you know, we're told to speak the truth in love. So I think if, if we're going to do that, we have to check our motives at the door. You know, am I about to speak truth to this person about their blind spot, about the lie that they might be believing? And am I doing it out of love, meaning agape love? Am Mm -hmm. I trying to foster their growth? Um, And if we're not up to either, then I don't think we're the one that ought to be talking to them. Mm -hmm. Now, even if that's in place, even if we are coming out of a motive of love and we're going to be accurate, I think we're still going to run into defensiveness. You know, if you look at the ministry of Christ, he just ran into defensiveness left and right. And the Pharisees were the toughest case for him because their blind spots were so huge. And they were just constantly resisting anything he had to say as if it were 
not only not true, but insane. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to run into defensiveness because people are just hesitant to hear that they might have been thinking wrongly for all these years. And they're, of course, going to circle the wagons a little bit to defend that. You know, I think there was a, a, um, a scientist, I can't think of his name, Richard Feynman, I think he said, I would love to get the exact quote because it's just popped into my head. Let me see if I can uh, dig it out here. Real, re- I'm talking real quick. Um, I think it goes something um, about that you are, you shouldn't be fooled in life. And one of the first things you should understand is you are the easiest person to fool. Yeah. Yeah. There's a related quote by Demosthenes. Okay. The easiest person to deceive is yourself, basically, yes. is the idea. Yes. And, uh, and I think that's really true, that self-deception is super easy in our flesh and that we are lying to ourselves every day. We're thinking that we see things accurately, but, you know, at the end of the day... Uh, our beat on reality is usually not all that uh, strong. Don't you think we overestimate our ability to do what is right? I, I think we do. I think we overestimate our ability to think correctly. <laughs> I think we overestimate our yeah. ability to behave properly. Uh, there's, you know, in all of us, me included, there's a fair amount of narcissism where you think you're, you know, kind of God's equivalent and that if it's coming out of you in your mind or your behavior, it couldn't possibly be wrong. Yeah. He, a theoretical physicist, and his name is Richard Feynman, he said, the first principle is you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great thought. Yeah. So um, how can we know, Chris, if if we're deceiving ourselves? How do we come to this this uh, realization, this this moment of, wait a minute, I'm... I'm fooling myself. Well, I think uh, if we <clears throat> if we aren't willing to go to somebody and ask for input on that, then I think we at least have to go to God directly and say, you know, I'm I am ready, willing, and able to see where I am self-deceptive, and I think God's response would be. You know, I've repeatedly asked everybody to be in my word regularly mm-hmm. so that I can use it as a lamp, so that I can in, in, uh, illuminate things about you that you do not see. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to shame you with them. I'm not going to condemn you with them because I'm out to help you, not to harm you. But I do think the word of God and the Holy Spirit in us working to help us come under conviction and clarity is really the ticket for coming out of self-deception. So, Chris, here's a question. Is there a difference between lies we believe about ourselves and lies that we believe about life? Well, there is a difference. Uh, In the book, I go into various chapters of lies, different types, if you will. And so there is a chapter on the lies we believe about ourselves and another one on lies we believe about life. Uh, so I do think while they may overlap to some degree, uh, that there are distinct lies that we buy into about life itself, uh, unrelated to what we might be thinking about who mm-hmm. we are. Can you give me a sample of one of those lies we believe about life? Well, a real popular one in a lot of motivational and new age stuff is you can do anything you set your mind to. 
um, and that's just nonsense. Yeah, uh, I would agree. There is absolutely no way that I am ever going to run the 100-yard dash in 10 seconds. It doesn't matter if I set my mind on it. God did not equip me with that ability. I mean, even in your prime, right? Even in my prime, yes. you had to tie me with a calendar. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's just not going to happen. But, yeah. you know, new age nonsense, human potential is unlimited. And, you know, it turns us into, again, thinking of ourselves as if we're God, because God is the one person that there are no limitations over. He can do anything he sets his mind to, but we certainly can't. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to go to a quick break, uh, Chris, but when I come back, I want to ask you the difference uh, between men and women. Uh, do they differ um, in the lies that they believe about themselves? Uh, Dr. Chris Thurman is my guest. His book is The Lies We Believe Now in its 30th anniversary edition. Renew your mind and transform your life. We'll be back with Chris in just a minute. the job after a short break. Dr. Chris Thurman is my guest. He's written a book now in its 30th anniversary edition called The Lies We Believe. And Chris, I just had a listener chime in on a text and said, if you can't set your mind to do certain things, how do you tell kids to dream big? Well, I think there is a balance there. I I would never want to artificially put a low ceiling over a kid. Mm Mm-hmm. And therefore, I would want to support their dreams, but I would always want to reality test them. So if a kid were to come to me or a parent and say, hey, uh, can I be a nuclear physicist someday? I think the proper response is, sweetheart, I don't know. Why don't we find out? (laughs) Can I play in professional baseball someday? You know, darling, I don't know. Why don't we find out? Let's Uh sign up for T-ball. Right. And let's see if we make the high school team, and let's see if we get a Division One scholarship, and let's let the proof be in the pudding. And if we don't make it there, we haven't failed. We haven't done anything wrong. So let's dream, and let's dream big. But reality is always going to be the best teacher. Yeah, I love it. So how do men and women differ uh, from the lies they believe about themselves? Well, I wrote those two chapters with great fear and trepidation, I must <laughs> I <bet> you tell <laughs> you, uh, because I really did not want to stereotype men and women, and that's been very hurtful to men and women both over the years. But I do think after being in my field of counseling for 40 years that there are, well, let me say this, men and women think much more alike than they don't. So the lies that men and women believe overlap a lot. But there are certain lies that I think men tend to believe and certain lies that women tend to believe. Uh, Men, for example, tend to fall into the lie that I don't have what it takes to be a man would be an example. Uh, Whereas I think women sometimes fall into the lie that it's my job in life to make everybody happy. Um, So I do think there are some nuances to the way men and women think, but again, I'm not rigid about that, and it's not that men and women don't think their own version of what's covered in those uh, respective chapters. Mm -hmm. In the book, you talk about the truth model. What is that? 
Well, the truth model is me taking the word truth and turning it into an acronym in order to put in model form the notion of uh, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. So real quickly, the first T is the trigger event. What is it that happened that triggered you? The R is ruined thoughts. What were the faulty thoughts that went through your mind? The U is unhealthy reaction. How did you react in a way emotionally or behaviorally that wasn't healthy? The second T is truthful thoughts. What would be the lovely, true, pure, worthwhile, praiseworthy thought to have had in your mind about what happened? And then did it lead to H, which is a healthy reaction to what just took place? That could be very useful. Well, I I felt like it would be useful, and it's part of the reason why I felt compelled to write a companion workbook, is that I didn't want people just reading the book and staying up in their head. I wanted them to take this truth model and start keeping a truth journal so that they could become more aware of the kinds of things that trigger them, the kinds of lies that they fall into more uniquely, and the kinds of reactions that they're having to life that aren't doing them any good. Mm -hmm. So, Chris, years and years and years of counseling, are there lies that rise to the surface that you start to hear more often than others? I do think uh, one of them, back to the issue of shame, is that it's not okay to be a human being and make mistakes. Mm. I think that is a universal, worldwide, faulty belief, is that being human is not acceptable, and I'm going to beat myself up whenever I make mistakes and prove that I'm human. And I think that is the enemy's, one of the enemy's greatest weapons against emotional health, relational health, spiritual growth and development. And when does that start getting into a kid's brain? Pretty young? I think they come into the world, uh, not that they could say it or clarify it to us, but I think they come into the world already aware of just how inferior, if you will, they are to everybody else because everybody else is bigger. Everybody else can run without falling. Everybody else is thinking at a different level. And therefore, I think they're already struggling with a sense of shame that they have to learn as they go things that other people already know. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in the, in the hands of loving, gracious, kind parents, I think a kid can be helped to not give in to shame. But if you're in the hands of parents that are critical and uh, dismissive and demeaning, then I think you just further get into the idea that, yeah, I I cannot afford to be imperfect, at least not in this family and maybe not in the world. Chris, uh, talk about people pleasers. You know, there are so many people that just uh, they make a big deal out of uh, getting others, other people's approval. And it's a big deal to them. Is it healthy, unhealthy? Talk about that. Yeah, I I think that's another common phenomena. I know that's one of my bigger struggles. Uh, I've struggled with both the perfectionism piece and this need for people's approval to where it's really painful when somebody doesn't like what I've done, doesn't like me. Uh, And I think for many of us, the whole thing of approval is actually an idol, that we actually do become rather idolatrous about people approving of us rather than playing to the audience of one, and therefore knowing that we have God's love and that he approves of us as his children. Uh, So in this world, you know, it's real 
tempting to look left and right and see who likes you and who doesn't and and even give up your integrity just to get people to approve of you. Mm-hmm. So in your book, you talk about lies that are usually in play. There's four of them when we're humans are being destructive to themselves and to each other. What are what are the lies, those four lies that are in play? Well, I think you're referring to the uh, shame-related lies, and those are um, I'm worthless is a lie, but that's how some people think. Uh-huh. I'm unworthy of love, that I am not fundamentally worthy of love as I am. Uh, number three, when there's a rupture in a relationship with other people, it's always my fault. It's never their fault. It's always me. It's always on me. And number four, it's not okay to be human and make mm-hmm. mistakes. Um, so those are the big four, I think, related to shame and identity and worth. Mm-hmm. That, those are big. Those, are, those four are big. And yeah. they cause a lot of problems, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah, and people are quick to... To race to that conclusion uh, in the middle of an argument, they'll go, okay, that's that's it. I'm worthless. You yeah. Know? And I don't deserve it. You and, you know, it's like they, they tank so fast. Yeah. Yeah, they really will buckle at the knees and just kind of collapse into a fetal position and, and not really stand up for themselves or truth or working on the relationship in a way that could actually heal it. Mm-hmm. So... Let's just talk about re- the renewing our mind and how important that is to get these lies um, out of our heads and how we can stay the course. Well, uh, perseverance is non-negotiable. You know, we really have to not grow weary. Uh, and I would tweak that to say we have to not grow weary of doing what's mentally right. So to me, every day you need to be in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You need to be studying the Word of God. You need to be meditating on it. You need to be memorizing it. You need to be praying, asking the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, not condemn you about it. Uh, So it is a lifelong journey. In this day and age, we're used to quick fixes. And a lot of us, you know, throw in the towel if I'm not better by, you know, 48 hours from now. And it's like that just does not work. You've got to stay the course. You've got to see it as a marathon, not a sprint. And, um, you know, not give up on this whole process because it is a process. And God will be patient with us, uh, but he, he's not going to drag us kicking and screaming into staying on the field. Yeah. Chris, um, just a couple minutes left. What is, what is your observation, your input about some of these Christian pastors that are sadly uh, ending their own life in suicide? Um, you know, what what kind of truth or what kind of, maybe it's just a mental illness, um, but what kind of truth can can defeat this, this yeah, enemy, that, this lie, this, I'm going to end my life? Well, it's heartbreaking to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't pretend to understand it or have studied it. I do wonder sometimes if a big part of it isn't biological mm-hmm. and that such levels of depression and hopelessness get generated biologically that the person then gives in to those thoughts as if they are true and real. So I wonder sometimes about just the looking out for people biologically. Um, But I think it's another example of how even people who are pastors and 
really dedicated believers can be susceptible to the enemy's lies to where they would take their own life. Uh, so it's a heartbreaking thing, but I would want us to go after it the three ways that we are made, body, soul, and spirit, and attack it on all three levels. Mm-hmm. Chris, what a delight. Thank you for this body of work that you have uh, had for 30 years and now the uh, revised and updated uh, 30th anniversary edition of The Lies We Believe. Renew your mind and transform your life. Dr. Chris Thurman. Thank you for doing the show, Chris. Well, Bill, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good day. And uh, again, the book is The Lies We Believe by Dr. Chris Thurman, T-H-U-R-M-A-N. Hour two, Dr. Mark Musk is going to be in studio. So I know you have questions about the Bible. So get them out. Text them to me now so I can start uh, giving them to Mark in advance. 877-933-2484. Thanks uh, to Chris for that wonderful time on the air. We'll take a short break and be back with Hour 2 in just a minute. 